Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But, of course, it is a bit easier to be um, determined when the alternative is that Stalin's secret police put a bullet in the back of your head. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. If there's one thing that's always changing, it's history. And no, we're not talking about the Confederacy here in the United States today. We're talking about one of our favorite subjects, Russia. Under the Soviet regime, history was malleable. Events appeared or disappeared like characters in a play. Stalin was a savior. He was a devil. It was all in the telling. But that urge to rewrite history goes way back in Russia. And he who controls the past controls the future, as they say. Joining us today is friend of the show, Mark Aliotti. His new book, A Short History of Russia, From Pagans to Putin, has got it all covered. Galiotti is an expert on the Russian military, politics, and underworld, the author of many fine books, and an honorary professor at University College London, and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, which means he's very busy. So thank you very much for joining us. That was my great pleasure. Can we start at the very beginning, uh, which is, what is a Russian? <laughs> um, gosh, well, I mean, it's, it's nice to know that the first question will actually fill the entire podcast. <laughs> Because that in itself is a contested issue, and how do you talk about them? And particularly now, the interesting thing is, and I know I'm wandering into a sideline, I promise I will get back to your question, but that given that in many ways the cradle of Russia is in what we would now call Ukraine, and that uh, as far as Putin is concerned, Vladimir the Great, the sort of the first Christian monarch, shall we say, of, of Russia, well, frankly, Kiev can claim him as our, our Prince Volodymyr. Um, so again, this, even, even nationality becomes a, a thoroughly contested issue. But broadly speaking, and as I said, I, I would come back to your, your, your question. Broadly speaking, I mean, the Russians are, um, I mean, a, a compound people like all peoples are, but primarily essentially they are what happened when 
sort of a conquering class of, well, we call them Vikings, um, Valiagi, the Varangians, decided to take over lands that were occupied by scattered Slavic peoples. And over time, these two together formed a compound, then got overlaid with, with Mongol, Tatars and all kinds of others. But that's really where Russian started. And that's really where we can sort of place the, the answer to the question, who is a Russian? It's interesting because so much of the book is about um, Russia's – how Russia defines itself in, in its relationship with Europe – and is it European? Is it not European? Is it its own thing? And to like, I, I would say that one of the founding, like one of the ways that you know you're European is that way back in 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 uh, the you know the Middle Ages or I guess pre Middle Ages, Vikings invaded your land and in, intermingled, right? Yeah, but the thing about, I mean, again, one of the reasons why, why the Russians sort of emphasize this, and, and let, let's be honest, you know, Vikings may be one of the, the great uh, European legacies, but the other one I could think about is Romans, and, and the Romans never made it to Russia. Um, but the interesting thing is precisely because Russia is in the location it is, it is at the crossroads of Europe and Asia, it's always had this issue of having to ask and also push for an identity question. Who are we? Are we Europeans? Are we Asians? Are we some kind of compound Eurasians? And often what's happened is actually in Asia, the Russians are regarded as Europeans. And in Europe, they're considered to be Asians. And so I think this is why, I mean, you know, if you are an Italian or if you're French or if you're a Swede, you don't really have to ask the question whether you're, you're European or not. It doesn't loom as large because you don't have to fight for your answer. So when did the Russian identity start to develop, um, whether it's Asian or <laughs> – and now they consider themselves Slavic, a Slavic people too. I mean, you know, helping out fellow Slavs in uh, what used to be Yugoslavia, Serbia. Um, so – but when did it start to develop an actual Russian identity? Well, I mean, really, if we go back, ninth century is when we started getting the the, the conquest um, of of the Slavic lands by the these princes who came from the north. And the interesting thing is, even that is overlaid with with myth. It's it's become this myth that basically the peoples of these scattered Slavic Slavic lands decided, well, you know, our, our land is rich, but we have no order. Let us seek a prince who may rule over us. They said, do, do, come on in, which, of course, actually is nonsense. Um, it was basically Viking adventurers who thought, ah, nice country here. We'll have it. Um, so, you know, from that point, it's already, you might say, acquired what we might think of as a sort of a European ruling class doesn't really sort of fit but perhaps what i would say sort of really important is the nine in the year 988 because that is where vladimir or vladimir of kiev actually decides to adopt christianity particularly in the sort of eastern orthodox mold um and basically baptizes his own people at spear point in many ways this was a political decision but that i think is what really links and locks the russian people into europe it's that decision to 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 shed their earlier pagan um belief system become 
Eastern Orthodox. And then as as the Romes fell to barbarians, as obviously the first Rome fell, and then Byzantium, the second Rome, in due course would, would fall to the Ottomans, to the Muslims, then they were able to think, oh, we are the third Rome. We are the true cradle of, of proper, genuine Christendom. So I think exactly from this point, really from, from the very end of the 10th century, that's when one, I think one, one would really start to say that Russians were European because they were looking towards European intellectual, spiritual and even cultural wellsprings. You lighted on something I want to talk about. Um, so a word that I keep I kept reading or hearing because I listened to the audiobook, um, which was wonderful, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I kept hearing the word autocrat over and over again, kind of reverberated throughout <laughs> all the eras of this book. Why, in, in, in many ways, the, the, the story that you tell of Russia here is a story of its different leaders, and they're very specific kind. You call them autocrats. Why was this concept important? How has it changed and been changed by Russia? Yeah, I use that term autocrat um, to mean just you know, a single ruler. Um, in part because one looking for something that isn't quite as value laden as dictator or tyrant, even though clearly a lot of the autocrats were dictators and tyrants. Um, I think it also reflects the fact that, you know, if one looks at the historical trajectory of how Europe moved from um, a feudal and in a way autocratic era through into eventually bit by bit heading towards democracy. In many ways, and this is this is one of the, the guilty secrets of history. It's all about farming, but most of us are not interested in farming, so we try to gloss over that. But in some ways, it's because you had an agrarian revolution in Europe that meant that they could grow more crops, and that in turn supported the rise of cities, of merchants, of new classes, of new professions, and slowly power and wealth move to them. Russia never had that, um, in part because of climate, in part because of soils, particularly this very sort of thick, rich, but nonetheless sort of intransigent black earth regions and such like, in part because of minor details like, you know, Mongols um, rolling over them and, and burning their main cities and, and, and such like. But for all those reasons, you know, Russia never had that true agrarian revolution. And therefore, you actually constantly had a situation in which a regime was sitting atop a country that was basically of peasants, small crust of aristocrats above an essentially peasant country. And in that, they, they never really managed to find ways of, of creating mediating institutions. So basically, they just had to be this just you know, this one guy at the top and everyone else obeys him. Now, some people say, oh, well, that was a Mongol-style system. I, I, I don't really buy that. Um, I think it's actually, when it comes down to it, about how economics shapes society and how sh society shapes politics. And the interesting thing is that it's really with the late 19th, 20th century, that we actually do begin to get a real and rapid change in Russian and Soviet um, economy, society and politics. And that's why, although one could say that Putin is an autocrat today, which he, he, you know, he obviously is, he's the final decider and so forth, but he's an autocrat over an incredibly 
more complex society. He's not like an old czar. We use the term czar. It's a handy shorthand for him. But nonetheless, this is not like the old old, old era. And so it's amazing after what we can almost think of as, as a, a millennia of autocracy in Russia, we now have a different kind of Russia at last. Can we talk about the forces that shaped Russia to become the way it was before Vladimir took over? Um I love how I call him Vladimir because, yes, exactly right. I, I call him Vladimir because he and I are so close. Uh, but um, no, I mean, you mentioned the Mongols. Um, the Mongols had a huge impact, right? I mean, they had a uh, – they basically took care of Kiev and left an opening. Um, can you talk about them a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think this this reflects the way that so much of Russia, this is something that obviously today's Russian leaders don't really like to acknowledge, but so much of Russian history has been shaped from the outside. And yeah, so you you start with the invasions by Vikings, and then later on the you know major impact is the invasion by the Mongols, Genghis Khan's massive, seemingly irresistible and surprisingly well organized nomad horde rolling to, towards Europe because you know, Blue Sky Tengri, their great god, had basically told them, yeah, as far as they're concerned, had told them the world was theirs for the conquering. And what happened was the scattered peoples of, of the Rus, the Russians, were at this point basically a, a collection of principalities of city-states who spent most of their time in, in classic aristocratic style, basically allying with betraying and warring with each other. So, of course, divided, they were in no position to, to resist the nomads. And what happened was Kiev tried to resist and was roundly destroyed for its pains. Um, a, a, a papal emissary passing a few years later, you know, described that the, the ghastly nightmare scape around it which just was scattered in the bones of those who'd been killed. Novgorod, the second most significant city of, of, of the Rus, which is a northern city, but above all, it was a trading city, a cosmopolitan city, and actually a lot more savvy, realized what was going on and immediately sort of happily surrendered. Um, and because this was an era in which the Mongols considered themselves to be conquerors, but not administrators, they, you know, they, they were not like the Romans. The Romans would take over and they would build roads and they would bring laws and they would bring in governors and they would actually expect to sort of shape the environment. No, no, the Mongols were conquerors. They, they, they were about taking control, winning battles and rolling further. So they were happy to rule through local princes. And what happened is this is how Moscow rose. Moscow, which had been really scarcely more than a village around uh, an aristocratic hunting lodge um, when the Mongols first arrived, still got burnt down but nonetheless there it was would rise to become the preeminent city precisely because the prince of princes of, Mo of moscow turned out to be the most able the most ruthless and the most cynical opportunists around they were happy to be the mongols main quislings their main proxies and over the years of mongol rule Moscow would rise precisely because whenever the Mongols needed uh, another city given a good kicking to remind it who's boss, whenever the Mongols needed a census taking so they could work out exactly how much silver to extort or whatever, 
the Muscovites were you know, amongst the first to, to volunteer and in the process enriched themselves dramatically. And bit by bit, they were able to assert their control until the point when they decided, well, actually, Mongol rule is declining. Um, we have probably got the most we can out of this uh, sort of arrangement. And then it, it was a Mongol prince, Dmitri, who became known as Dmitri Donskoy, who actually made the first sort of major sort of uh, ch challenge against the Mongols, uh, a battle at, at Kulikovo, which, which he and his, his allies won, which didn't really end Mongol rule. That would happen only a century later, but allowed the Muscovites to reinvent themselves. Having from having been the Mongols' number one proxies, suddenly they could present themselves as the number one patriots of Russia and continue this process of unifying it. So it's not actually that the Mongols brought with them. I mean, yes, obviously, there's a certain amount of, of language and culture and style of rule which was adopted. But first and foremost, I would say that the influence of the Mongol era was in allowing. Well, it was in destroying Kiev. And so ensuring that Kiev was no longer the dominant city was in taming Novgorod, which is a shame because Novgorod actually was amongst the most kind of democratic and entrepreneurial, if we want to use it in those terms, of Russian cities. And Novgorod dominated Russia would have been a fascinatingly different place. But instead, it was the quizzling city Moscow that got to rise and become dominant. What a noble history. Um, <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, <laughs> Everyone's history is noble. True. Right? That's a very good point. Um, but I, I guess, so what story do Russians tell themselves about Moscow? What does Moscow tell itself? Oh, I'm sure it would amaze you to know that it's a rather different history. <laughs> one of the best ways of describing it is there is, there is this, um, well, the, the first one was in Moscow, and then they kind of rolled out sort of equivalents elsewhere. There's um, a, a kind of museum exhibit um, at Vedenka, which is a kind of sort of was the old exhibition of economic achievements, a pavilion, which is called Russia, my history, Russia, my history. And it's it's really well done, all very glitzy, multimedia and so forth, a, a, a big trajectory of, of, of Russia's history. Um, and if you look at the early stages, it's all, all very sort of glitzy on screens. And very much it makes this point of atomized. This is one, one big map that shows, shows the sort of pre-Mongol Russia atomized. It's all divided into these city-states. And that's why it was weak. And the whole point, what they say is not, hey, the Muscovites were, were the number one quizzlings. They say, look, this is the point. Whenever Russia is divided, Russia is weak. And whoever is the imperial power of the age will wipe its boots on us. Moscow was the city that united. It was what called the gathering of the lands. You know, that gathered the Russians together under one rule and made us strong enough to, in due course, be able to push out the Mongols and, you know, acquire this you know, status as a, a, a great nation. So they kind of happily elide over the early bits, um, and instead, what they do is they emphasise that, however it was done. And obviously, they don't talk about exactly how it was done. But however, it was done because Moscow united Russia. That is what not only created the Russian state, but brought security to Russia. And whenever Moscow's birthright, the, the state, has been divided since then, it has been vulnerable and its many, many enemies all around it 
will prey on it. So this this kind of idea of rewriting history, I think, is another one of the central themes, or maybe kind of the opener and closer of the book. Um, can you walk us through your palimpsest metaphor that you kind of use and why it's important here and like kind of how it structures everything that you discuss? Sure. I mean, a palimpsest is uh, a piece of parchment or a similar document which has been written on and then that writing has been erased or scratched away, but not quite to the point of invisibility. And people have written on it again, because obviously once upon a time, one, one didn't just sort of pull out another piece of paper from the um, you know, pack of photocopy stuff. Um, you know, actually, this each each, whether it was wax tablet or, or piece of parchment was, was valuable. And so the thing I the reason I use this, this metaphor of the palimpsest where one sees layer after layer after layer of progressively more and more faint writing. But nonetheless, you can get that sense of what was described, discussed before then. It's precisely that is that is Russia, um, that actually one can see all these you know, geological layers of history that is still visible. Frankly, you, you walk through the streets of Moscow today and you can see things that actually will be reminiscent of um, the Mongols. I mean, if I think of you know, where, where I, I lived there at one point, you know, close to me was the street Bolshoi Ardinka, the Great Horde Street. I mean, that was the road that you took heading towards Sarai. That was the um, capital of the Golden Horde Mongols. I mean, it, it's still there and engraven in the street names. And one can see all these other signs all around. So I think this is a country where its history is still very, very visible in, in day to day. And that's why I call it the Palimpsest Nation. Um, and I think rewriting history is just one aspect of this, this point that I make. And look, obviously, when you're trying to take a thousand years of this extraordinarily sort of fascinating, but also I think it's fair to say rather busy country and squeeze it into 200 odd pages and at the same time you know have space for the fun stories and everything else you know you need to have some kind of organizing principle and so when i was sitting down there thinking well okay what, what is the organizing principle it was actually the extent to which russians are so assiduous in in effect telling themselves stories about themselves and i don't just simply mean that they sit around you know, lying about their exploits i mean more, more generally that they are constantly needing to define themselves because this is a country which doesn't have natural borders. It doesn't have you know, a single ethnicity. It's a, it, it's, it's a multi-ethnic country sprawling all across the continent, 11 time zones in total. Um, where, where does Russia end? Where does it begin? Where does it fit? You know, all of these are, are challenges that Russia's try to, Russians try to address through their own mythology about themselves. So I think this is why it's not just a kind of George Orwell 1984 way of political control, though clearly that is part of it. It's also genuinely how Russians are trying to come to terms with just who the hell they are. We're going to pause there just for a minute. War College, we are on with Mark Galliotti talking about his new book, A Short History of Russia. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, welcome back, War College listeners. We are on with Mark Galliotti talking about his new book, A Short History of Russia. So you mentioned specifically that, um, you know, Russia has sometimes defined itself in opposition to other groups um, and including the West. I mean, do you think that that's important as uh, the way, you know, Russians see themselves now? Very much so, because I think this is one of the interesting things that um – you know, sometimes you, Russia's rulers are desperately trying to ape the West. Um, classic example is Peter the Great, the first czar who actually traveled in the West, um, but who decreed that, you know, the big bushy beards that were previously a sign of the Russian aristocracy. Well, those all had to go or else you had to pay a special beard tax. Um, and that instead, people had to be clean shaven the way Europeans are. And they had to get rid of their old caftans and wear the sort of clothes that Europeans wear and so forth. So, you know, some of it was, was very much about we need to be European. And that inevitably sometimes created a backlash. Like people say, no, no, we are not going to become Europeans light. We have our own distinctive character and culture and, and we're going to cleave to that. But this is the interesting thing. Whether you're saying we need to be more European or whether you're saying we don't want to become Europeans, you're still basically defining yourself by Europe. We don't find the same sort of discussion about China or, or, or any of the other sort of great powers that at different times they've bordered on the Ottomans or whatever. It's always Europe that they're looking to and whether they're actually saying, oh, we want to be like you or no, 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 not. It's always that which is the sort of benchmark by which they assess themselves. It's interesting being in Moscow, and you noted this far more than I do, um, the mixture of architectural styles, too. It's encoded in, 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 in the landscape, in the built environment, you know, whether it's, um, you know, motifs that are clearly Byzantine. I mean, even the, the double-headed eagle that is now the symbol of the Russian state, you know, that was a, a Byzantine empire symbol. That they just thought, oh, we like that. We'll have that um, and, and, and adopted to sort of try and give the sense that we are the new Byzantine Empire. You see exactly you see Eastern motifs and sometimes, you know, obviously much, much more sort of striking than elsewhere. You see clear attempts to sort of ape classical, heavy 19th century European architecture that says, no, we are a solid imperial nation. Um, you know, and now you've got Moscow City. This this very kind of glitzy, shiny new um, financial center of of skyscrapers and such like, um, which actually I mean I think rather impressive. But again, you know what they were trying to do? They were in some ways trying to outglitz Western business centers. 
in uh, I was very interested, intrigued by the the fall of the czars portion of this book. So I think in the West, when we tell that story, it, it, the thing that we like to obsess about and talk about is Rasputin, right? Uh, who's mentioned once and then kind of moved aside from. Again, you're focusing on the autocrats, the leaders. Um, can you? And that was very the way you portray him is very interesting. Can you kind of tell us why he was? Uh, this is Tsar Nicholas. I'm sorry. The the exact wrong person at the exact wrong time. Yeah, it's interesting that there's such a drive at the moment to sort of try and make him into something he's not. Um, you you know you have the the church that is sort of basically sanctifying him and so forth. He really wasn't. Um, in this respect, I mean, sometimes Russia was tremendously lucky in who actually managed to gravitate to power, the right person at the right time. But by God, the karma they collected was was, was paid back um, in, the, in this case. You had, anyway, look, a Russia that was increasingly un, under pressure. Um, there had been attempts at reform each time the attempts at reform, particularly the emancipation of the serfs, freeing up of effectively the land slaves, um, brought with it instability and chaos. Change does that. Change is scary. Change is difficult. Change always puts great pressure on the state's capacity to hold on to its power. And you know, a, a series of czars who either had no real answer or just simply were relying on the old answers of, you know, a crackdown, um, trying to sort of basically reverse changes that, frankly, were long since overdue. And then along comes Nicholas. And this was a time when precisely you needed someone who would be able to be a competent navigator through what were going to be very, very rough waters. And you have someone who would have been so much happier, so much luckier, and probably lived so much longer if he'd actually been a watchmaker. And that's what he loved to do. His misfortune was to be born as the divine right autocrat of one of the last great global empires. Um, and, and the thing is, he was this worst combination of essentially not at all bright, but dutiful. You know, if he had been dumb but lazy, then probably power would have been in the hands of other, you know, sharp-toothed but quite possibly more competent agents. I mean, people like his, you know, his short-lived uh, prime minister Peter Stolypin. Um, but no, this is it. Nicholas felt I mean, he, he was a dutiful and devout man who felt because this is a divine right monarchy that he was czar because God said so. And so clearly he needed to, to, to do the best. And he really didn't have a clue. Um, he was isolated from his own country in a way that, frankly, most autocrats are. Um, he had no sense of, in a way, how to respond to the challenges of the age. You know, the world is, well, the, you know, sorry, the West is coming into the industrial age at this point. Um, you know, Russia is is is. is tragically behind and even as it does industrialize all that does is create a new an urban working class who are thinking well hang on we want change we want votes whatever um and you know you mentioned rasputin this this kind of rather dissolute uh, sort of mad monk figure who you know let's face it is the dream character everyone uh, filming a documentary or a docudrama um around the end of czarism the reason i don't really talk about him much apart from the fact that Again, to compress a book, 
you know, into one book of this length, all this history. It was at once exhilarating, but also truly heartbreaking. All the great stories I just couldn't include. But in many ways, I think the thing about Rasputin is he was a symptom, not a cause. You know, he was an example. He was this guy who seemed to promise literally magical answers. He would be able to cure um, Nicholas's son, who, who had, you know, basically had had a blood disorder. Um, he offered a degree of sort of spiritual succor uh, and possibly he offered Nicholas's wife something more. Um, but, the, but the main thing was, look, at, at a time when the world was so complex and so scary, here was a man who was offering simple answers and reassurance. And that's what, what Nicholas went for. And I think, therefore, this is it. All, all these kind of potentials that there were other people who, who Nicholas could have listened to. I mentioned this man, Peter Stalipin, who became his prime minister right after a series of risings, um, 1904-5, sometimes called a revolution. That was really just a collection of risings. I mean, Stalipin was, on the one hand, a deeply brutal man. I mean, he crushed the risings exceedingly efficiently but violently, so much so that still to this day, um, the hangman's noose is known as a Stalipin necktie. Um, but on the other hand, it's a guy who realized that Russia needed to change and that that had to be a managed process of change. And he started doing it with, with rural reform. Nicholas didn't like it. It meant change. It meant people were unhappy. And frankly, when there was a plot to assassinate Stalipin, Nicholas quite possibly knew about it and did nothing to stop it. And Stalipin died. And, and so it was. So I think in a way, the thing about Nicholas is the fact that he was so incapable in some ways meant that, that the Tsarism lost its last chance. But frankly, I think by that point, the regime was dead. I sometimes think of it as like one of these kind of you know, dinosaurs, tiny little brain along at the end of a long, long neck and a massive body that in some ways could basically die. And it takes a while for the for the brain to realize it. Well, likewise, I think this, this is a regime which anyway had pretty much died. Maybe if Nicholas II had been a much more able character, Maybe he would have been able to squeeze a little bit more life out of it if he hadn't de been determined to bring Russia into World War One, if he hadn't then been determined to make himself commander in chief, a job for which he was manifestly incapable. Then things might have been different, but they might have been different for a few years or maybe even a few decades. But when it comes down to it, this was a system which was dead. Well, in history, it was against him. I mean, you know, empires were dying or dead all around the world, too. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, this is it. I mean, this 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 was a, a, a different era um, and and empires that were going to survive were ones that were going to be ruthless, pragmatic and change. I mean, you know, one can look at the, at, at the British Empire, which obviously didn't survive, but, but hung around for longer and was able to kind of transform itself into the Commonwealth. Um, because you know, let, let's be perfectly honest, if, if, if there's anything that, that we, we Brits excel at, it's being ruthlessly pragmatic, even while pretending to be nice and polite. Um, but but Russia didn't have that. It didn't have that. You know, it, it didn't have leaders who were able and willing to make that kind of change. The only one who in some ways had had that capacity, Nicholas I, who had been sort of around in, in the middle of the 19th century. I mean, he, he was ruthless and efficient and energetic. But ultimately, he had not had the courage to really try and take on reform. He might have been able to do it. If he'd been willing to do that, he might have had the characteristics to, to push it through. But that's what you need. You need to have a very sharp um, toothed reformer. 
at the at the head of the system to even have a chance at managing this kind of process. Nicholas the second was not that. <laughs> when you're writing a book like this, you're sorting through. I assume you read, and you've got kind of ref, uh, recommendations built into the book. Um, but you're sorting through a lot of different histories. And as you've kind of said, Russia is a, a place where history is constantly being rewritten and uh, the story that Russians are telling themselves is constantly changing. How do you kind of sort through like what is accepted history, what's myth, what's rumor, you know, as you're writing a book like this? I mean, that's a really interesting uh, question. Um, and in some ways, I, I was lucky that I have been teaching Russia in different periods. I mean, obviously, although I'm primarily a modernist, um, I would say fortunately, academics can often not be too too narrow in, in their, their teaching. So, I mean, I, I if I even go back to when I was teaching at, at Keele University in, in, in the British Midlands in, in the 1990s, you know, I taught courses that went back to the eighth century and so forth and above all did it with with colleagues. Which is again always really interesting because they will come with their own different perspectives and, and, and skill sets. So in some ways, I, I, I had been grappling this with some time for some time, and also I had uh, quite recently written a book specifically on this Battle of Kulikovo um, when Dmitry Donskoy took on the Mongols for Osprey, and that was a really fascinating and salutary experience in realizing that once you actually start digging into the original sources you realize that the, the received wisdom is based on nothing much except wishful thinking and stories cobbled together by church chroniclers a hundred years later. So I think this is the, so the answer is that actually you, you go back to the original source as much as you can. Um, need to read the secondary materials and the biographies and things to get a sense of the, of the, of the shape and you know, just be exposed to a whole variety of different perspectives. And I find this particularly, I mean, like Catherine the Great, Catherine the Great, I'd never really kind of fully felt I'd got a grip of. So I had to read rather more in terms of, 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 sort of biographies and assessments of her. But then once you've got that sense, you need to test that with the primary material. And, you know, they say, oh, well, at this point, Catherine was saying X. Well, you go and look at her letters and say, OK, yeah, well, kind of. But actually, she was saying X with a little bit of Y. Um, so that that that's the way it works. And again, in, in that respect, it was actually quite, uh, I, I would say, quite, quite liberating to have an excuse to go back to, to reading, you know, wh whether it's in terms of the, the, the Novgorod Chronicle or whether it's in terms of, of Catherine's letters or whether it's in terms of particularly fascinating the um, travel memoirs of foreigners passing through Russia just to get a sense of, of, of what they saw, how they experienced it. It does seem like an impossible task, though. I mean, history is my favorite subject and you know, when I think about the fact that let's just take a legal case that you could have four eyewitnesses and at least three different stories uh, must make your job very difficult. Well, I mean, if I was a true cynic, actually, I would say it makes my job a lot easier because I just get to pick, pick the fun perspective and no one can prove me wrong. That is perhaps a little too cynical. No, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's always the case that, that first of all, you, you have to lean also on 
the um, perspectives of, of the specialists, the people, you know, again, if, if let's say, well, let's move, move on from 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 Catherine, um, say you know, Peter the Great. You know, there are there are people who have spent their careers being marinated in all the detail, all the sources and so forth. And, you know, you, you have to think very carefully before you go against their perspectives. But though you have to accept also that sometimes, you know, history perspectives um, does does move on. Um, but, yeah, but there is also I, I will be honest, an extent to which there were times when. You came across a, well. I came. I would come across a story. It was a nice story, a story that I wanted in the book, and thinking I can't absolutely say that this definitely happened. But as long as I could pretty confidently say I can't prove that it didn't, if it was a good story, I put it in. <laughs> Can you give us an example of one of those? Um, I mean, again, obviously, this tends tends to be sort of. When when one goes sort of further back, um, you know, because obviously sort of when when you're talking about kind of you know, church chronicles and such like these have a tendency to. Well, they often are literal palimpsests written over one another, but they're also often kind of what one could think of are as narrative palimpsests. That what they do is they they take someone else's um, uh, story. And I think one of the things is like uh, Novgorod. Again, I, I have a soft spot for Novgorod. I really want to actually go go back and, and, and spend some more time looking at Novgorod. Because as I said, it, it does represent one of these extraordinary potential what if stories about Russia is if it had dominated rather, rather than Moscow. But the point is the, the, the Novgorod Chronicle gives you this brilliant sense of a people who, even in the era of, of autocrats, they didn't know it was near of, an aut- of autocrats. And you have the, the Vietje, which is the sort of uh, general assembly of the people of Novgorod, often being you know, really quite ballsy. They regarded the princes as basically their employees. Mm-hmm. And so you have these cases like there, there, there was one particular uh, point, um, you know, where a sort of a prince was really deemed to have not um, – not 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 done his job, and and so what happens is actually that the, you know the the princes of uh, sorry the, the the people of of Novgorod sort of get together and, and basically say right that's it get out or else we will come after you, and and by God we we will we will do bad things to you and 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 the guy leaves. Now you know we don't know the detail of that, but because I quite like the idea of telling this story of Novgorod as having a very different style of rule than the rest of Russia. There comes a point where I think, that'll do. <laughs> Even you, the objective arbiter. arbiter are. Yeah, well, I mean, look, a book like this, you're trying to be the objective arbiter, but you've also got to be a storyteller. Uh, I mean, the, you know, if, if you want the really detailed, intricate um, explorations of the sort of the minutiae of each era, you're not going to read a short history of Russia a thousand years in 200 and something words. Um, the purpose of, I mean, anyway, this, the purpose of this, I felt, was to do several things. I mean, one was just simply to tell a damn good story and in a way to treat Russia as the protagonist of its own story, as in some ways a person. Um, but but secondly, it was actually that there is a kind of a, a, a serious geopolitical point is that these days, and for understandable reasons, 
Um, generally speaking in the West, I think there are some tremendously two-dimensional portrayals of Russia. Um, and especially in the United States, where, again, for entirely understandable reasons, much of the time when people are talking about Russia, it's just an idiom for talking about the current White House. And I suppose what I wanted to do was actually give a portrayal of, of just a sketch out some of the, the complexities of this country and the extent to which, yes, Russia is different. Yes, Russia is distinctive. But actually, if we're honest, I mean, this is this is my view. You know, Russia is a European country that often loses its way, but it never quite lost it totally. And actually, I think it's slowly coming back to Europe and with it, the West. And I think that's that's a, a point that I think is, is worth making at this at this particular sort of juncture. In that way, it's kind of a companion piece to another book that you've come onto the show and talk about, uh, which is another short, brief book. Uh, we need to talk about Putin, right? Yeah. I th again, I think, and I, I mean, this sounds tremendously arrogant. Oh, no one else understands Russia. Oh, no one else understands Putin. Of course, lots of people do and you know, understand both Russia and lots of people have very, very uh, deep insights into Putin. But I think, in a way, the purpose of these particular short books is exactly to try and challenge some of the, 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 the myths and the lazy assumptions, whether it's of Putin, the three dimensional geopolitical chess player who is always you know, ahead of ahead of the West and, and basically the, the architect of all our misfortunes, or whether it's this idea that Russia is this land of um, you know beaten land slaves who simply want to be told what to do by uh, sort of a, a semi-godlike monarch or conversely purely a country of authoritarianist authoritarianism despotism and violence without also noting that actually this is a, a country which also has a history not, not just of extraordinary sort of cultural and, and, and other glories but also of people fighting back against their autocrats, that Russians are not nature's victims, that Russians may often have been put in a very tough spot for reasons of geography, culture, economy, and so forth. But actually, they have often pushed back against that just as they are now. That's interesting because you're right. Uh, well, I mean, forget saying that you're right, but uh, it does seem like the American view, and I can't speak to the Western view, but the American view of Russians is even in World War II that they had guns at their back as well as guns in front of them, right? I mean, that the soldiers and everybody, um, they sure they fought bravely, but uh, it wasn't least because <laughs> they were going to be shot if they didn't. Um, it, it just makes for an interesting view of, of Russia, I think. Yeah, and to be let's be honest, there's more than a little bit of truth about that. Um, you know, I I really don't want to take away from the the, the genuine heroism and endurance um, that that the Soviet soldiers and the Soviet population demonstrated during World War Two, and it's understandable really why they call it these to this day the Great Patriotic War. But of course, it is a bit easier to be. Um, determined when the alternative is that Stalin's secret police put a bullet in the back of your head. Um, 
And, and I think that's, again, one of the, the complexities. Look, even while I try and simplify Russian history for the sake of being able to fit it into this slim book, I'm also trying to you know, at least sketch out actually the complexities about it. And I think one of the interesting things is that you know, we have an often quite simplistic sense of the Russians. But the official line that Putin is is currently putting out is also, I would say, ridiculously simplistic. You know, it, it does try to exclude all all these kind of complexities, all the, the, the moral but also political ones that say, well, actually, yes, um, you know, the Soviets did do X and Y. But at the same time, that was in part because, um, you know, Stalin was 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 forcing to do that. And the more that Putin tries to essentially create an official history, which, is, again, is a very Soviet thing to do. I mean, he actually see he demanded when at the time when they were looking at creating a sort of common history textbook for schools that the official story of the country ought to be free of internal contradictions and double interpretations. Well, look, the history of no country is going to be free of internal contradictions and double interpretations. That's the essence of humanity. That is the essence of history. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. One can one, one can see heroism as well as this, that kind of deep, dark, cynical leadership. Um, so in, in that respect, the, the, the American perspective is right. Um, and it's let's be honest, it's one of the reasons why I'm a Russianist. Um, you know, for me, history is all about the stories. And I think the Russia has the most extraordinary stories in which the heroism is especially bright, but also the miseries are especially bloody and dark. As perfect an ending as that is, I need to ruin it by asking one more question. <laughs> of course. Um, so there's a, there's, you know, one character, if we can call him a character that kind of looms over this whole book. And I feel like doesn't come in until the very end. Um, and I feel like there was one really telling line uh, as you're wrapping up the book where you say that you're making an attempt to put Vladimir Putin in his historical place um, and kind of compare him and contrast him to all these other autocrats that have come down the line. Where do you see Vladimir Putin's place in Russia's story? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. Um, I'll actually make th three. Uh, if this is the last question, I'll milk it for all it's worth. Um, I think Putin himself is clearly actively trying to shape his own history. Um, you know, this is a man who he ha he has all the all the palaces, all the expensive tracksuits, whatever else that he could possibly want. Um, you know, he has all of Russia as his piggy bank. I think he's moved. It's almost like kind of autocrats, uh, Maslow's pyramid of, of, of needs. You know, you, so as you go up and more and more rarefied. And at the top, he's basically, I think, thinking about his historical legacy um, as the man who if we can coin a phrase made Russia great again. Um, there's an interesting point where he talks about Russia has been lifted up off its knees and, and it's interesting, it's not Russia has got up off its knees, but it has been lifted. The implication is clearly he is the one doing the lifting. So, I mean, he is, I think, trying to build himself this, this historical position as the sort of the one who who reconstituted the state. You know, his first two presidential terms were reconstituting the state after the chaos of the 1990s. And his, I was going to say last two, but we'll have to wait and see. 
let's say, second two terms um, as, as president are about instead putting Russia back where it deserves to be in international relations, you know, establishing it as a great power. So I think that that's his his vision of himself. Very, very heroic, very much in, in the in the mold of figures like Peter the Great and in a different way, like Stalin, who absolutely shaped the era. Secondly, though, I think also one can see um, certain aspects of Putinism really kind of reflecting, echoing, shall we say, um, trends that we've seen earlier in Russia. That exactly there, there's sort of the there is a pendulum swing you often see between an era in which the biggest risk seems to be not to reform. Because if you don't reform at home, you're going to become technologically backward and foreign countries are going to be invading you and such like. So you try a bit of reform, that becomes chaotic and you come to think, no, 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 actually the biggest risk is in reform. We actually need to sort of consolidate a grip on the country, otherwise the mob will, will, will tear us apart. So it's, you know, is, is, the, is the threat from without or within? And I think Putin very much has, has anyway ridden this pendulum from being one who saw the real threat as coming from within and then therefore the need to reconstitute the state and fight the Chechens and such like to one who actually feels that the big risk is from outside. And we'll have to see now, actually, as, as he comes more under more pressure, whether in, in some ways the pendulum will swing back. So in that respect, Putin is just a very kind of classic Russian figure. The final thing is I think history will treat Putin quite severely. Um, I think he will be considered to be a transitional figure, not a defining figure. He is the kind of last of the homo sovieticus generation, the generation who didn't just weren't just born or educated in Soviet times, but had their first early career experiences. In a way, they, they were already grown ups by the time the Soviet Union collapsed. They'd already kind of had their patterns for how the world is and everything else. And they had to deal with this traumatic shock. When literally overnight they went from being citizen of one of the two global superpowers to being citizen of this ramshackle country that no one really knew what it was about and everyone regarded as a geopolitical basket case and so forth. And I think so much of, of what explains Putin is really emotional. It's not about careful, cunning, complex, intellectual thinking. It's actually about what happened and who took it from us and we want it back. Um, very visceral, very unrealistic, um, but, but very strongly felt. And we're already seeing, I think, that there is a new generation of, of leaders arising who I'm not saying they're any better. I mean, a lot of them, frankly, are kleptocrats. They're corrupt, but they don't have quite the same sense of we want it back the way it was. Not Soviet, we don't care about communism, but you know, that sense of greatness. And so I think this is it. I think Putin will be seen as a transitional figure from Soviet era to the next political generation, which will follow him, which will be the first truly post-Soviet era. And that's why, I mean, I had no hesitation about consigning him just to a couple of sections of one chapter in the book. It's a temptation, obviously, to give him a whole chapter and whatever else, because he looms so large to us today. But when you look at the often quite astonishing characters, I mean, sometimes astonishingly horrible, but nonetheless quite astonishing characters who have shaped Russia over the centuries, Putin really is not in their league. Well, Mark Galliotti, author of the new book, 
A Short History of Russia, From Pagans to Putin. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, War College listeners, we will be back next week with more conversations about conflict on an angry planet. If you like the show, please follow us on iTunes, leave a comment. It does help people find the show. Uh, and we have a Substack where you can get a weekly newsletter all about everything that's going on. Some secrets there right now. Some secrets. Angryplanet.substack.com to subscribe. Uh, we will be charging for it shortly, but we've got some other things in the hopper. Wait until you see. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.